We are in a series, that series is on the book of Hosea, and we're taking it in larger chunks as we make our way through. Now, the way that we're able to go about teaching this book, and you'll see it here today, we're going to cover chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7. There's just no way to walk through every single verse line by line and give an expositional, in that sense, um, precept by precept. What we can do is to draw our attention to what are the big picture items that Hosea is trying to get us across. We'll take a few passages of Scripture and probably look a little bit more in depth. Now, this particular section, chapter 4, sets the stage for this entire section. And if we understand chapter 4 and even a portion of chapter 6, if we understand that, I think we've got what this section is saying. Most folks, when they come to church, don't want to hear a long list of all of the sins that they are committing. So I could do that. I could teach on that over and over again, but I think we'll get the gist of it if we just look at chapters 4 and then look at some of the things uh, that he's saying. So we've said this in the series thus far. We all question God's love. Now, what is Hosea? Hosea is a book about God's love. He is going to use an individual to put on display, to give a visual illustration of what his heart is like. But this book is about God's love. It's a pretty challenging story about what God has called a prophet to do. And most of us in the first few weeks of this thought, man, I sure am glad I'm not Hosea. I don't know that I could have done what God called Hosea to do. And guess what? No, you couldn't have. And Hosea couldn't have either had God not given him the grace in the moment to do that. This is a supernatural love. It's not a natural thing. Hosea is a book about God's love. We said this last week. Love is experienced through word and deed. If we are going to experience the love of someone else, not just hear about, not just have intellectual knowledge of, if we're going to experience the love of someone or if we are going to give love to someone in such a way that it will be experienced, it will happen through both word and deed also. Take out either one in the equation and I don't think people are going to fully experience it. So what does God do with us? He gives us his word. And there are many of us that struggle to believe that this right here really is true, that his grace really is that sweet. We have, or amazing, we have a hard time trusting him, taking him at his word. And so then God does other things for us. But the one thing above everything else that he did was he sent his son to a cross. So that when we have doubts about what it is that God has done on our behalf, we have one single moment in time that should clarify everything for us. Now here's the question. How significant is the cross of Christ going to be, though, if I don't see myself in the proper light? Here's what I mean. Do you believe that you are basically a good person who does some bad things? Or do you see yourself basically as an evil person who is desperately in need of God's grace and mercy? That will determine a great deal about how significant the cross will be in our lives. Because if we see ourselves as basically good people who occasionally do some bad things, we're going to miss the whole power of what that cross is all about. 
If I see myself as a person desperately in need of God to intervene in time and space, and he didn't have to do it, if I see him as extending incredible love, grace, and mercy towards me, I will probably have a great deal more appreciation. Do you remember the story when Jesus is eating dinner and this individual comes in and says, you know, Jesus would have known who he's eating with me right now. Does he have any idea how sinful this person is? It's a little story. There's these two people, and they owed a certain amount of money, and this person over here owed this amount, and this person over here owed this amount. And this was a little bit, and it was significant enough that it was going to cause some pain to get it paid back. But this one over here, there was no possible way in their lifetime to ever pay it back. And the owner of this, who who was the owner of, of both of these debts, forgave them both. Jesus said, now, which one of these two do you think is going to be more appreciative of the forgiveness of debts? The religious guy says, well, duh. It's obvious the one who's been forgiven a whole lifetime of debt is going to be far more grateful than the person who has a little bit of debt. Jesus said, yeah. And Jesus just leaves it right there. Which one do you think you are? Do you think you owe a debt to God? so huge that you could never again repay it? Or do you think you just need a little Jesus boost? A little step up? A little help because we're all basically good people who just make a few bad decisions every now and then? So today's message, I promise you, is not going to be one that you're going to say, whew, I feel so Wonderful, but the reading of that scripture is just so inspiring and motivating. If we don't hear the bad news, the good news will never really be that good. So what does love do? What is the main thing I think we need to see this particular week? I think the main thing we've got to see this week is that love keeps coming back. Love will not succeed in every single circumstance. Now, I'm going to explain that because I know what 1 Corinthians says, that love never fails. I'll I'll get to that. For us, humanly speaking, there's no way that you will ever perfectly love another person. You will fail every person that you love in your ability to love them. Is there anyone that would actually disagree with that? We will fail those that we really, truly, deeply love, that we want to give ourselves to, sacrifice for, uphold. We will fail. So what does love look like? It keeps coming back. It keeps coming. And when they fail, love keeps coming back. Now, God's love is different. His love will never fail. His perfect love uh, won't, but ours absolutely will fail. I want to read two passages of Scripture. If you have the physical ability, would you stand in honor of God's Word? We're going to read the first six verses of Hosea chapter 4. Then we're going to skip over to Hosea 6 and read the first three verses of that, and then we'll make our way through uh, the text. Hosea chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites. Because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing, lying, murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bounds. And bloodshed follows bloodshed. 
Because of this, the land dries up and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the fish in the sea are swept away. But let no one bring a charge. Let no one accuse another. For your people are like those who bring charges against a priest. You stumble day and night, and the prophets stumble with you. So I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I also reject you as my priests because you have ignored the law of your God. I also will ignore your children. Now then over in chapter 6, the first three verses say this. Come. Let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him as surely as the sun rises He will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. You may be seated. The opening indictment or the opening section of this in chapter 4 gives us an indication that the Lord is now going to start a formal trial against his people. And so he says, hear, everyone, open your ears and listen well. In our day and age, we would say it like this. Please pay attention to what I'm about to say. The tone would get up. We'd give the dramatic pause. We would wait for a moment to silence the sit-in. Those who are carrying on conversations, we would give that awkward pause so that they're heard by those that are around them. It, listen to what I'm about to say to you is what, is what God is saying to the people right now. In other words, don't just keep going about your normal everyday business without thought as to what you're doing. Stop for just a moment. Can I ask you this question? For you, when was the last time that you just sat for a moment and evaluated the direction of your life? Do you have any kind of regular routine in which you're going to to say, God, would you bring to my mind how it is that I'm living? Am I going in the right direction? Am I involved in the right things? Am I where you want me to be? Am I straying, et cetera? You may come to that conclusion that you say, I'm exactly where God has called me to be. I'm doing exactly what he wants me to do. Great. Pause. Sit, think, listen. God, where would you have me go? Tell them right here, stop for just a moment and listen to what I'm about to say because I'm going to unload on you, not for the purpose of making you feel really, really bad about yourself, for the purpose of you understanding how significant of a problem this is. And then my goal ultimately is that you would see just how magnificent my love is for you. Hear the words, you, uh, the word of the Lord, you Israelites. The Lord has a charge to bring us. Charge is basically in three statements that are right here. I'm going to hone in on one in particular because I think that's what um, Hosea does uh, in the unfolding of story. The first charge is that there is no faithfulness um, whatsoever. Now, when he says that there is no faithfulness, maybe a different word that we could use for it is there's no reliability. 
There's no reliability for you to do what it is that you've been asked to do. That would be true at home, in the family, in relationships. It would be true at their workplace as well. It would be true on the government level. And it would be true especially in terms of the mission that had been given to them. To take this message of what God has done on behalf of the Israelite people, to be a city on a hill, to be a light that is shining to the world. There's no faithfulness whatsoever in living out this gospel message as well as giving this gospel message to others. No reliability for the people whatsoever in doing that. The second thing that he says, that there is no love. There is no reciprocity of God pursuing the people and then the people in return pursuing the person of God. There was nothing in their hearts that was stirring them towards the person of God. And since nothing was stirring in their hearts, there was no faithfulness to live out what it is that God had called them to do. There is no faithfulness. There is no love. There is no love relationship that's going on. There was some fulfillment of some of the duties, but it was absent of any measure of the heart with it. Now, since Hosea is using, God is using the illustration example of a marriage, I want to go back once again. I've given it probably three times before. John Piper is the originator of this illustration. I find it to be so productive, and and I'll share it again in this moment. Imagine that a husband comes home to his wife, rings the doorbell. She then goes to the door and says, honey, what in the world are you ringing the doorbell for? And behind his back, he pulls out a dozen roses with a card and just says, I wanted you to know that I love you. I was thinking about you. And on my way home, I was overwhelmed with how much I love you and how good you've been to me. And I just wanted to surprise you with this. Is there a woman in the world that would not say, that's okay. I mean, the fact that you thought about me, it doesn't really mean much to me at all. Wouldn't their heart be warned? Knowing that he just did it because his heart compelled him to do that. Now, the bouquet of flowers, it's, it's, it's money. And by the way, the flowers are going to die. It's not about this everlasting gift. It's just about, it is a token. It is a representation of what was going on inside. Now, same scenario. Doorbell, husband rings, wife opens the door. Honey, what are you doing here? Duty, obligation. I'm getting this to you because I have to. Does that stir the heart of a woman? Is there a woman here to say, I'm just melted? Wow. Same act, different heart. We can go through the acts of worship. We can come to church. We can sing. We can serve. We can give money. All of the things can be the same if there's no heart that is stirred and moved towards the person of God. If it's not done out of appreciation for who he is, it's about as good as the flowers that are given out of duty and obligation. I recognize there may be some wives here going, I'll take duty just once, just to be thoughtful one time. That'd be great. No faithfulness, no love. And then finally, and this is the crux of the issue, there is no acknowledgement. There is no ag, no legement of God. There's no knowing God. How do you know someone? 
You talk to them. You open up to them. They open up to you. There is this reciprocity. There is this knowledge of who this person is, how they are wired, what they think. You can likely predict with certain level of accuracy, never to 100% accuracy. You can never read someone's thoughts, but, but as husbands and wives get to know each other, or friends get to know each other, siblings, etc., as years go on, you just have a good sense of what this person is likely going to do. Why? Because you know them. You know when there's going to be a movie that you say, ah, they're really not going to like that. I've got some sci-fi movies that I love. And if I, I, I'm telling you, if I were to put them on a Friday night, Judith, I think you're going to love this movie. Five minutes in, she's going to go, what made you think I would like this? I I, I know she's not going to. I, I know Many, I, there, I don't know everything there is to know about Judith. Are you kidding me? There's always more to learn and to discover about the people that are in our lives. So it is with God. We'll never exhaust knowledge of God. But it's getting to know the person. There's no knowledge of me. There's no experiential knowledge of me. Now, can I summarize with this statement right here? You know what the issue is? You know what Jose is telling the people? You refuse to get to know me. You are intentionally refusing to to dwell with me, to abide in me. You're refusing to do what is needed in order to get to know me. You would rather follow through with the motions, hoping that the rituals that I have set up for you, the feasts, etc., are going to, you think that that's what God is after. It's never what he's been after. He's always been after this. And that's why the scriptures can say about a murderer, an adulterer, that he was a man after God's own heart. It's not the sin itself. It's the refusal to draw near to the person of God. I don't think I'll have to explain this. Every relationship is difficult. If you have entered into marriage in the last year and a half, and you were thinking, I can't wait to give all the blessings, all the benefits, etc. This is going to be so wonderful. The rest of my life is going to be spent in bliss, and we're going to know each other so we can finish each other's sentences, and there's never anything that we're ever going to have to work on. You're a fool. Marriage is hard. Let me say it this way. Good marriages are hard. Now, if you just want to exist in the presence of one another, you can probably do that without a whole lot of effort. But if you want to actually have a partnership where there is mutual love and respect and dignity and there's giving and there's taking, if you want to have a relationship that is not just sort of two people beside one another, but it's this right here, that's work. And that's true of every human relationship that we want to have a depth of intimacy to. So it is with God. If you think your relationship with God is supposed to be easy, you are a fool. You're not stupid. You don't lack intelligence. It means that you don't understand. It requires 
work. Now, let me tell you this. Every relationship that I have had that has had a depth of experience. And so, again, I have a relationship with Judith that's unlike any other on planet Earth, but there have been great guy friends that I've had over the years that there's been but real, true leaning in on mother. There's been this, every great relationship that I've ever had has always gone through periods of difficulty. And has it been worth it? You bet your bottom dollar. It has been worth all of the pain, all of the awkwardness, all of the working through. It's been worth me coming and Put my hand, my hat in hand and saying, I am so sorry you did not deserve that. That was just me being a jerk in that moment. And I apologize and there's been forgiveness and I've had to forgive and they've had to forgive, etc. This is what God desires. Not that there's ever a time in which we're going to have to forgive God. I don't mean to imply that. In verses 4 through 9 in chapter 4, he calls out the priests as especially guilty for not teaching the word of God to the people of God. In verse 6, he says, my people actually perish for a lack of knowledge. What is it they're, they're dying from? A lack of experiential knowledge of the person of God. Because again, when we draw near to God, when we get to know him, we get to know his ways, then we will likely live out his desires for us in a far more effective manner. We need the power of Christ. We need the Holy Spirit. I'm not implying that we can do this on our own apart from him. I'm saying the more we get to know God, the more that we get to discern in individual scenarios how it is that we should live this thing out. So he comes after the priest and says, you guys are not teaching my word. How do you expect people to know what I want? Sounds and what uh, they were experiencing at that point actually sounds like what was taking place in Romans. Don't well, you can if you want to, but uh, just know that uh, I'm going to read this. It's, it's I'm convinced that Paul has in mind uh, uh, the book of Hosea when he's writing this. So that what was going on in the nation of, of Israel, it would it would follow in the nation of Judah not long after this. Um, was that people were devoting themselves in the list that I read off earlier in Hosea one. Listen to what uh, Paul says in Romans. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Now listen. For although they knew God, shallow level of knowledge, although they knew God, They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the image made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires at their hearts to their sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged their natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relationships with women who were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful, uh, uh, not shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, 
just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do uh, what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they approve of those who practice them. Here's what Paul is getting at, what Hosea was getting at. It all starts with the refusal to draw near to God. And when the leaders of God are not leading the way towards the person of God, and the people go and do things, whatever is right in their own minds, and what becomes right in their own minds becomes so evil and so corrupt that the people themselves get destroyed. Culture gets destroyed. And that which is intended to be true, God's people are to be involved in the world, placing them in the world to slow the process of decay, to point them to the truth, to say there's a better way of doing that. They just simply live in the same kind of ways that the culture does, and the culture is destroyed. I'm not a prophet. I'm not a son of a prophet. I'm asking you to consider what does America currently look like? I do not blame the lost world. I look at us at the church and say, have we pursued the person of God or have we just gone after some sort of experiential journey in church hoping that we would have a few bright moments on Sundays? where we bow the knee of submission to a holy and righteous God and said, you can do to me, for me, through me, in me, over me, whatever you choose, whenever you choose, however you choose. Have we been in the world that which is slowing the process of decay or, or do we just look like everyone else? In verses 10 through 19, he says there's this spirit of prostitution that leads them away, and he gives a pretty powerful illustration. He says, you have come at me with worship in the same way that a person will pursue a prostitute. Why does he use that terminology? Because a person who pursues a prostitute is not trying to get that prostitute pregnant. There's no reproduction that's taking place there. It's a very short experience. It's not something that's going to be worked on. It's not going to be something that husband and wife are trying to make this a mutually beneficial experience for one another. They're not looking and seeking to meet the needs of the other person in this. It's a completely selfish, self-centered orientation using this other person. But this other person is not going to reproduce in the process. There's going to be no joy. There's going to be no satisfaction. It's actually going to stir up something worse than the end. It's what happens when you come to me is what he's saying on Sunday mornings. And you come to me without a heart that is prepared to worship me, to give to me, to declare my greatness, my honor, to bow the knee of submission to me. If you're coming just simply looking for an experience in which you and you alone can benefit, you're never going to be satisfied. Chapter 5 is a warning to the religious and political leaders. They should have been leading the people back to the person of God, um, but they followed the people away from God rather than pulling the people back to God. Chapter 6, we read verses 1 through 3. 
This is the people being called now to a place of repentance. Theologians have wondered over the years if this is a sincere or insincere measure of repentance. I will tell you, I am fully confident it is insincere. It is the words of repentance without the heart of repentance. Listen to what, um, to, uh, uh, sorry, in the rest of, uh, from verse 4 all the way through the end of chapter um, 7, um, is getting us back to what the heart of God actually is. This is where I want to end our, our time for this, this sermon. In verses 4 through 7 of Hosea 6, I want you to listen to what I think summarizes the heart of God. And there'll be one verse in, in, in chapter 7. We'll, we'll tag along with it. I'm going to read it to you in the message. What am I to do with you, Ephraim? What do I make of you, Judah? Your declarations of love last no longer than morning mist and pre-dawn dew. And that's why I use prophets to shake you to attention. Why my words cut you to the quick to make you wake up to my judgment blazing like light. Why? I'm after love that lasts, not more religion. I want you to know God, not go to more prayer meetings. You broke the covenant, just like Adam. You broke faith with me, ungrateful wretches. Have you ever had a conversation with your child or your spouse in which you had to come in and, and, and with all the best intent of, of being loving in the end, you had to say, you were wrong. The most unloving thing that we could do is just to simply let someone that we love dearly go on a course of action, a course, a path in life that is destructive in nature and never have the boldness, the courage, the love to tell them where you're going is wrong. And this is what God is doing here. I'm sending prophets to you. And their words are harsh. And you know what you're doing? <laughs> prophets. Sure. Sure, that's where God is. God's just a loving God, isn't he? Isn't God just going to overlook all that we do? Doesn't, isn't God's job to just love us unconditionally? Yeah for those whose hearts belong to him. But for those whose hearts do not belong to him, there is judgment. There is wrath. There is destruction. Israel in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 7 had absolutely atrocious and horrible domestic policy that led to destruction. In verses 8 through 16, Equally destructive foreign policy. Their idea was to go to the very nation that would destroy them and ask them for protection. Rather than going to the God of the universe, the one who created them, the one who had all answers to all problems. Rather than going to him, they tried to go to what appeared to be a nation that they could chum up with. Can I ask you this question? Before we come to the table, what are you turning to? If today you are turning towards something that is not named Jesus, 
If you are turning to your work, believing that your work is going to somehow or another bring you a certain measure of, of, of satisfaction, dignity, etc. If you're, if you're trying to look to your family to do this, if you're looking towards money, towards what, if you're looking towards anything that you believe is going to provide for you security and significance, I want to urge you, I want to call you to repent. Come back to the person of Jesus. Do you know what's waiting for you? Grace, mercy. Love always comes back. And no matter how far you think you may have strayed, no matter how far you are running away from God, you cannot outsin the cross. But you cannot experience life's truest joys and pleasures and contentment outside of the person of Jesus. So come to Jesus.